Welcome to the latest on the law, a podcast of the Boston Bar Association. The Commonwealth's premier legal association, the BBA, is home to over 15,000 members and 140 institutional partners consisting of law firms, corporations, government agencies, legal aid organizations, and law schools. Visit us at bostonbar.org to learn more. Uh, welcome to our presentation on uh, essentially the nuts and bolts of Rule 14 and exculpatory evidence. Uh, my name is Jamie Charles. I'm a uh, the senior appellate counsel at the Middlesex District Attorney's Office. I also run our office's uh, police discovery and search warrant teams. Uh, and I'll let my colleague Patrick uh, introduce himself. Hi, everyone. My name is Patrick Simmons. I'm with CPCS, the Committee for Public Counsel Services, the Public Defender's Office in Massachusetts. I am a trial attorney at the Boston Trial Unit uh, here in downtown Boston. Uh, great. So obviously we only have an hour today and Rule 14, uh, there's a lot to cover. So I'm going to try and kind of power through um, the bulk of the rule. And then Patrick is going to take over and discuss uh, some tips and strategies for defense attorneys in the context of obtaining uh, discovery. Just a couple quick notes. Uh, I will be providing a PDF of this PowerPoint to the BBA for provision to all attendees, so no need to like copy down case sites or anything. Um, and also, Patrick and I uh, are happy to answer any questions anyone has, and we'll try and hang around a bit at the end to answer those, but we're probably not going to answer them uh, in the middle of the presentation just because we want to make sure we can move uh, everything along. All right. And with that, we're off. Um, if I can get this to work, maybe. There we go. Um, so. Uh, we're gonna run you through the various provisions of the rule, which are essentially outlined here. Um, spend, probably gonna spend most of our time on subdivision A, which is really the meat of rule 14. Um, and I, in particular, I'm gonna spend some time on exculpatory evidence, which is an evolving and hot button issue at the moment. I mean, it's kind of always a hot button issue, but we have a lot of uh, balls in the air and cases pending at the moment. Um, so as you can see, uh, subdivision A essentially covers uh, automatic, and discretionary discovery, the mechanism by which you might file motions to seek it, um, and a variety uh, of other procedures that you might take in the process of providing discovery. We're not going to spend a lot of time on subdivision B uh, because that is very specific and nuanced, uh, and we don't really have time in an hour to dig into it to the degree that would be necessary. Um, we'll talk about sanctions toward the end of the presentation, and then subdivision D just defines uh, what a statement is essentially, and we'll be covering that in some of the other slides. So, <clears throat> um, so rule 14A1A, automatic discovery. This is the meat of the rule. Uh, and for most attorneys purposes, everything you're gonna need to know, or most of what you need to know is gonna be contained here. It's a relatively concise listing of all the automatic discovery, though, as I think will become evident throughout the course of the presentation, divining which kind of items fall into particular categories is not always uh, the easiest thing to do. Um, so in order to understand what mandatory discovery is going to be owed, if you're a prosecutor, we have to understand who possesses that evidence, whether it's exculpatory or otherwise. Um, so here I have listed what I view as the members of the prosecution team. This is not formally a part of the current Rule 14. It is intended to be part of uh, what I anticipate to be a revised version of Rule 14, um, but it essentially complies with 
how the case law defines members of the prosecution team. So obviously members of police departments and other law enforcement agencies involved in the investigation, personnel from other government agencies. So what I mean in this regard is if you're if a defendant is on probation and there were Elmo records obtained potentially, um, if the local police department liaised with the executive office of public safety or the sheriff's department or the violent fugitive apprehension unit of the Mass State Police, there's a variety of other people that may be also uh, involved the working government. Um, anything from the MSP crime lab is going to be covered by number three. So like forensic analysts, crime lab personnel, um, independent laboratories are a bit different. We'll talk about that afterwards. Uh, victim witness advocates and investigators. So, you know, if you should, if you're a prosecutor, you should be checking with your victim witness advocate. Did they talk to your victim? Did the victim make statements to them? Did they record any of those? Um, did any family members make statements? These are things you may have an obligation to turn over. And then members of joint state and federal law enforcement tax forces. What I mean here essentially is be thinking about, you know, if your officer is working with, say, the DEA on a joint drug investigation or they're working with the FBI on a human trafficking investigation or a terrorism investigation, you want to be mindful of that because if a federal agency played anything other than a minor role in the investigation or prosecution, then you're probably going to have a discovery obligation with respect to items that are in their possession. Another thing I just want to note, and it's not strictly a discovery thing, but if you do have federal involvement, you also have to be thinking about how the law here differs from the federal law in terms of any suppression motions, warrants, other things that happen during the case. So that's kind of a tangential thing to keep in mind, but just be aware that you may be obligated to turn over things uh, in possession of the feds if there is a joint investigation. So um, I did also want to briefly note that we don't, we, the government, if you're a prosecutor, we don't possess information known only to victims or witnesses or to other third parties that are not in our possession. However, we do have an obligation if we become aware of these things to at a minimum notify defense attorneys um, of this information in a timely manner. So whether it's like a victim's therapy records or information from a police IA investigation, that doesn't qualify as being in our possession under Commonwealth v. Wayness, but it is still exculpatory. We have to let the defense know and give them an opportunity to file Rule 17 motion or explore it further. Uh, we have an ethical obligation under Professional Conduct Rule 3.8D not to remain willfully ignorant of these things. All right, so diving into the meat of uh, Rule 14A. Statement of a defendant, that's pretty obvious. Um, anywhere they're memorialized, if you obtain jail calls, make sure you turn those over, uh, particularly in OUI cases or domestics. If there's a booking video, there's probably gonna be some statements in there. You're gonna have to turn over 911 calls, police reports, et cetera. Um, a statement, the, the definition in the actual rule is a little more lengthy, but essentially a statement amounts to a writing by a person with percipient knowledge of the relevant facts or a recording of an oral statement. Um, so you know, if you're taking notes during an interview and you memorialize it, it, it is a statement, even if you don't memorialize it, if it's exculpatory, you better remember that it was said and turn it over or you're gonna have some problems. Um, grand jury minutes, I'm not gonna talk about this uh, for very long, just to note that this is really gonna matter in isolated situations, right? If you have a superior court prosecution or if you have a co-defendant who was indicted where your defendant remained in district court, or the third situation would be if the case was referred for indictment and then kicked back to district court. But in any event, if there are grand jury minutes and recordings of parties that appeared before the grand jury associated with your case or a co-defendant's case, you're going to want to have to turn those. You're going to have to turn those over in the course of discovery. 
Um, now we're going to dive into exculpatory evidence, which is probably going to take up the next 10 or 15 minutes, uh, as I want to make sure that all of you have a thorough understanding of your obligations. Uh, if the prosecutors in the room, assuming there are some, take anything away from this training, I would suggest that it would be what's on this and subsequent slides regarding exculpatory evidence. Um, while the courts say, when the courts say it's our duty to administer justice fairly, they mean just that. It is not about winning uh, or securing a conviction at all costs. Uh, in the same way that we have to exercise discretion in making charging decisions, moving for bail or pretrial detention, we have to strive to ensure that the playing field is level at trial. Um, I think the movie My Cousin Vinny, I'm probably dating myself now, uh, exemplifies this the best. Um, but, you know, you have to turn over evidence so that there's no unfair surprise at trial, especially potentially exculpatory evidence. And it has to be turned over in a timely manner without regard to our view, the prosecutor's view of its importance. Even if you don't necessarily think something is relevant or admissible, that's not the test. If it's potentially exculpatory, you have to turn it over to the defense. It is there, it is the defense attorney's Patrick's purview to decide whether something is going to be important in the context of their case, not yours. Um, so how do we define exculpatory evidence? Uh, if you're looking for guidance, these four categories are probably where you're going to want to turn. Um, these First is the seminal decisions of the United States Supreme Court, Brady v. Maryland and Giglio. Um, Brady concerned the withholding of a co-defendant's admission to committing a murder that occurred during a robbery uh, in which both defendants participated. Giglio involved an undisclosed promise to a prosecutor's key witness that they would not be prosecuted if they testified for the government. Um, these cases are mostly relevant because they kind of set the table for the other categories. Um, our courts, just to put it bluntly, have expanded the definition of exculpatory evidence well beyond those two Supreme Court cases. So when you hear people say, oh, that's not Brady evidence, that's not what defines a prosecutor's obligation in Massachusetts to turn over exculpatory evidence. Um, you know, so even though most people think of it that way, in reality, in Massachusetts, there is a plethora of exculpatory evidence far beyond those cases that we have an obligation to turn over. Um, rule 3.8D obligates us to make timely disclosure of any evidence that negates the guilt of an accused or mitigates the offense. Uh, rule 14, again, requires us to turn over facts of an exculpatory nature, um, but doesn't do a great job of defining exactly what that is. There are, uh, I do expect uh, revisions to that rule to be adopted soon that will hopefully do a better job of uh, defining that. But for now, you'll just have to bear with us and what I can tell you in this presentation uh, by reference to the case law. I think the cases I've listed here, and if Patrick has others he wants to let you guys know about, that's great. But I think the four cases I've listed here are some of the most relevant recent cases that you can refer to in terms of figuring out what exactly exculpatory evidence is. Um, so the current rule talks about facts of an exculpatory nature. The proposed revisions talk about items and information favorable to the defense. Um, and I think the reason that there's going to be this anticipated shift is because the term exculpatory is a little misleading. Exculpatory suggests that a piece of evidence tends to clear a defendant of guilt. Uh, but in reality, our rules in the case law here in Massachusetts uh, have expanded the term, term well beyond that core meaning. It can be impeachment evidence. It can be uh, information that potentially leads to the exclusion of a piece of evidence or supports a theoretical defense uh, that opposing counsel isn't even actively pursuing. So it's a very broad category of evidence. 
Um, and so I think you should probably start thinking about disclosure in that way and not strictly in the narrow uh, definition of like evidence that clears a defendant uh, of guilt. Evidence does not have to be absolutely destructive of the Commonwealth's case to be exculpatory. I think this quote from Commonwealth v. Diaz really does a good job of explaining the minimal relevancy requirement for evidence to qualify as exculpatory. Um, and as the case matter of grand jury, which I cited on the previous slide, makes clear, um, we as prosecutors have uh, our view of the credibility or admissibility or relevancy of evidence is kind of irrelevant to the calculus. If there's any inkling that something might be exculpatory, you're going to notice a trend here. You should turn it over. Let the defense attorney be the ar final arbiter of whether they can make use of it or not. All right. So common examples of exculpatory evidence. Um, I just a lot of these are no brainers, but I thought it'd be useful to run through some of them. Um, you have an obligation to turn over evidence that supports uh, justification or defense, regardless of whether the defendant is actively pursuing it. Even if Patrick tells me I'm not pursuing an insanity defense, I'm not pursuing a self-defense uh, defense in this case. If I have evidence that is potentially exculpatory as to one of those offenses, I still have an obligation to turn it over. So you have to be thinking about potential defenses and how things you or your investigators have learned could further those. Uh, you know, third-party culprit, diminished capacity, lack of criminal responsibility, et cetera. Um, if you have a physical confrontation between two or more parties in your case, you have like a domestic A and B, or you have a fight that on the street that results in a stabbing or a shooting, um, and you are aware of evidence of, a, of the victim's violent character, you have an obligation to turn that over to the defense. That's called adjutant or first aggressor evidence. Um, if you have a recent booking photograph of the defendant uh, or and it is inconsistent with evidence you developed during your investigation uh, in terms of, say, uh, it could be a Facebook photograph or some other social media posting where the defendant looks different than the description provided by um, your victim or witnesses in the case. That would be exculpatory evidence because it's evidence tending to suggest that the defendant is not the perpetrator. Um, I wouldn't think I'd have to say this, but I tell police, I, I find myself telling police all the time, if a witness doesn't identify someone in an ID procedure, you don't just throw those papers away. You retain them and they are now exculpatory and have to be turned over to the defense. That is exculpatory evidence. Um, any inconclusive or negative scientific tests, DNA, ballistics, fingerprints, and so on and so forth. Um, and then, you know, evidence of police misconduct, which I'm going to talk about a little more later. Anything you learn of in terms of pending or sustained allegations of misconduct or civil suits against law enforcement officers or potential witnesses in your case, you're gonna be having to turn that stuff over as well. Um, another big category of exculpatory evidence is impeachment evidence. Um, and again, I'm just gonna run through, this is what we commonly refer to and as Giglio evidence, but again, it's a broad category. Um, any inconsistent statements from a witness, even if they're inculpatory, you know, they can still be inconsistent with something the witness said in the grand jury or to investigators, uh, and therefore that would be an inconsistent statement that you would have to turn over. Um, any prior convictions of our witnesses, though this is somewhat covered by other provisions of the rule. Uh, gang affiliation, uh, not just if your case involves a gang dispute, but if you have 
witnesses in your case who are going to be Commonwealth civilian witnesses that have a noted history of gang affiliation. That's exculpatory evidence because jurors and laypersons have a negative view of, people's who are involved, of people who are involved in gang. Now, you may not be able to use that as a prosecutor against the defendant because it's prejudicial, but that may be fodder for impeachment by a defense attorney and therefore needs to be turned over. Um, if you have any knowledge, witnesses or otherwise who had mental or physical disabilities or uh, struggles with drugs or alcohol in or around the time of the crime that might have affected their perception, and you learn about that, that is also something you would have to turn over to the defense because that goes to the credibility of their testimony about what they may have seen, if they're a precipient witness or heard, if statements were relayed to them by other individuals. Um, another big category, the last one on this slide, discrepancies in chain of custody. Um, it seems obvious, but it can be a variety of different things. You know, was the evidence room of the police department that's prosecuting the defendant recently audited? Uh, was an evidence officer subjected to an IA investigation? Are there missing entries in the limb system of the state police crime lab? Was the packaging in which the, the key piece of evidence uh, traveled to the lab or came back, you know, unsealed or not properly uh, signed by the person who had custody of it. There's a variety of different things that can go to the weight or admissibility of evidence that you need to be mindful of as a prosecutor, um, especially when you're talking about scientific evidence that's moving around to different entities within the Commonwealth. Uh, the last thing I'm gonna talk about in terms of exculpatory evidence is misconduct of police witnesses. Um, we as prosecutors, at least presently, this may change in the next month or so, do not, we are not in possession of documents that are in the that are in the custody and control of an internal affairs unit of a police department. Defendants pursuant to Commonwealth v. Wayness have to file Rule 17 motion and meet certain thresholds to get access to that information. That being said, we unquestionably have a duty, if we become aware of these things, to notify defense counsel of it. And arguably under this case at the bottom of the slide, Commonwealth versus McFarland. Uh, do and will continue to have an obligation to make affirmative inquiries of police departments and other members of the prosecution team to learn about whether police officers have a history of misconduct or a pending allegation against them. Arguably even potentially uh, external to the police department, right? If there's an MCAD complaint or a civil lawsuit alleging a violation of civil rights, uh, the SJC is gonna flesh this out pretty soon, uh, but I would expect that some, if not all of these are gonna be the prosecutor's obligation. So be on the lookout for those things. But in the meantime, you should assume as a prosecutor that you need to be making affirmative inquiries of your witnesses to make sure that there's no IA or misconduct histories um, that could be viewed as exculpatory in the context of the case in which they're a potential witness. The only other thing I wanted to briefly note on this slide is the existence of the Police Officer Standards and Training Commission, which has an online database of officer misconduct. So if you're a prosecutor or a defense attorney, that should probably be your first stop in any case to see if there's a history uh, of IA complaints against an officer who is a potential witness in your case, at which point, if you're the prosecutor, you can make further inquiry, or if you're the defense attorney, you can file an appropriate um, Rule 17 motion. All right, so moving on to the next case, we're gonna jump uh, rapid fire through some of these categories, which are more self-explanatory here. Uh, rule uh, A1A4 and 5, witness information of civilian and police officer witnesses. Uh, the only thing I will note is that I expect soon that uh, 
We as prosecutors will also be obliged to turn over email addresses for law enforcement officers, not just business addresses, which are functionally useless to a defense attorney. Um, it might be a good idea to start doing that now, frankly, or if you're a defense attorney to make a request for that using a discovery motion, if you, for whatever reason, you need access to individual officers and want an easy way to contact them. Uh, subsection six, experts. Uh, we're talking about you know, a variety of different people that prosecutors might be using in their case. You know, we use experts on drug distribution, accident reconstructionists, uh, any employees of the MSP crime lab are ostensibly going to be ex experts, digital evidence experts, cell site location experts, and so on and so forth. Uh, defense counsel is entitled to these individuals to know about these individuals well in advance of trial and to know their level of experience and any relevant information they may have. Uh, that they've generated in anticipation of their testimony, including if they've generated any PowerPoints or other demonstrative aids or things that they're going to use when they take the stand and testify in the Commonwealth's case. Um, as an aside, whether you're a prosecutor or a defense attorney, you're probably going to want to know uh, where and how often an expert has testified before and if they've been the subject of, say, like any particularly effective cross-examination in a prior case. You should think about if you're a prosecutor asking your expert about that, because you know, while it may be harmful in the sense that if the defense attorney knows about it, um, it may give them a leg up, you don't wanna be unaware of it and then put your direct on and suddenly defense attorney walks up to the lectern with a transcript and tears your expert to pieces. So if they've been subject to pretty harsh cross-examination before, you probably wanna get ahead of it and know about it early. And if I'm a defense attorney, I'm probably going to be filing a motion to see if I can figure out where they've testified before so I can get those transcripts myself. All right, uh, subsection seven, this is the meat of mandatory discovery, right? Physical evidence and witness statements. So pretty much anything you're going to anticipate introducing a trial or physical documents that are generated during the course of the investigation, um, evidence gathered and documentation from the crime scene, surveillance footage, canvas reports, pretrial statements of anyone uh, we intend to call as a witness, exhibits you anticipate admitting into evidence, but also chalks, diagrams, spreadsheets that may just be marked for identification and used as demonstrative aids um, at trial. The list goes on. I'm sure Patrick's going to talk about some of these things when he's going through his slides. But, you know, if it's in your file, if it's in the police department's file, there's a pretty good chance that it's probably something that needs to be turned over. Um, so you should make an effort uh, to assure that you've gone through everything and turned over any 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 documents um, that were generated during the course of the investigation that aren't work product. Um, this next slide is kind of self uh, is kind of obvious, but I, it, it merits mentioning that whether you're a prosecutor or a defense attorney, you should absolutely be inspecting all of the physical evidence in your case. The motivations will obviously differ depending on what side you're on. You know, if I'm a prosecutor, I want to know. Um, I want to have seen things that I'm going to have people bring to court and try to admit into evidence before I do that. If there's any of the aforementioned uh, issues with like chain of custody or property not being or bags not being properly sealed, as I mentioned before, when discussing exculpatory evidence, I want to know about that now. Uh, if I'm a defense attorney, I think it's just good practice in terms of providing effective uh, assistance for your client and avoiding those kind of ineffectiveness motions after a potential conviction to be able to say that you've looked at all the evidence in the case, right? And that you made arrangements with the prosecutor to go and take a look 
whether it's going to the lab or whether it's going to the police department or to the DA's office to look at uh, items that may be in possession of the prosecutor, that you've examined the evidence and satisfied yourself. And if I could just chime in on that one absolutely, uh, real quick. So it is important. See the stuff. You got to see it before the jury sees it. And you may get some pushback here um, on wanting to view this stuff, but you have an absolute right to see it. Um, so don't let that, you know, dissuade you. Um, if you think you need to see it, you probably do need to see it. So don't be afraid to, you know, demand it to, you know, if the prosecutor prosecutor's giving you a hard time, bring it before the judge. Uh, don't let that up. All right. Yeah, absolutely. I agree 100 percent. All right. Uh, subsection eight. ID procedure documents. Again, all I want to emphasize here is this includes lineup, show ups, and photo arrays, whether or not the witness made an identification. So if you learn of ID procedures as a prosecutor, you need to notify a defendant of those and turn over any documentation that was generated during the course of those procedures. And if they were recorded or videoed, uh, you have to turn that over as well. Um, and then lastly, in terms of the subcategories of mandatory discovery, promises, rewards, or inducements. Um, this includes really anything that can be construed as an incentive to your witness. So there's the more obvious things like plea agreements, immunity, um, assistance with ICE matters, but also you know any potential social services you may have referred them to, buying food for a witness, providing travel costs for a witness, even if it's just an Uber ride to the courthouse. Um, you need to let defense counsel know about these things. More often than not, they're not going to provide particularly strong fodder for cross-examination. I mean, unless it's an immunity agreement uh, or a plea agreement. But, you know, even if you're just paying for somebody to get to court, you have to let the defense attorney know about that. That is something that is both potentially exculpatory in the sense that it can qualify as impeachment evidence and also obligate, you're obligated to provide it under this subdivision of the rule as well. The defense is entitled to cross-examine to their heart's content about potential bias uh, or motive a witness has to be testifying on behalf of the comp. All right, so uh, disclose, disclose, disclose. Again, this slide is sort of self-explanatory, but I can't stress it enough that as a prosecutor, you should err on the side of turning everything over. Um, if you don't think it's relevant, then it's probably not gonna hurt you anyway. But if you have any inkling that it could be exculpatory or, or mandatory under these rules and you don't turn it over, you're not only setting yourself up for consequences in the context of the actual prosecution, which we'll talk about in a subsequent slide, you're also setting yourself up for potential professional repercussions for the board of bar overseers. Your reputation is everything, and it's going to stay with you for your entire career. It's not worth jeopardizing it to get a tactical advantage in a case or because you may be uncertain whether something qualifies as mandatory discovery. You know, if you have concerns, I always tell this when I'm training internally, talk to a supervisor. You're obviously not on an island. You have colleagues, you have supervisors, you can run it by other people, but definitely err on the side of caution and be sure you're turning everything over if it can even remotely be construed as mandatory discovery or exculpatory evidence. The lone caveat to that, which again, we'll talk about briefly on a subsequent slide, is um, if you have information that you feel might be privileged, you don't get to make a unilateral decision not to turn it over. I think the CPCS VAG case, which dealt with the Sonia Farrakh litigation, is probably the preeminent example of how that can go wrong, right? I mean, one of the assistant attorney generals is no longer an attorney now because of that unilateral decision she made. Um, if you do have those concerns, consider 
putting the information before the judge and camera or talk to defense counsel about getting a protective order to limit further dissemination. But you as the prosecutor don't get to make that decision about whether something is relevant or exculpatory. You have to involve the court. You have to involve opposing counsel and take appropriate steps to protect that information while still satisfying your discovery obligation. Um, so once you've gathered everything together, realistically, not necessarily once you have everything because discovery can come in bursts, but once you have a good quantum of the discovery that you plan to turn over, um, you should draft a notice of discovery for, if you're prosecutor, of course, I'm talking at this point, um, for provision to defense counsel, serve it in advance of the pretrial conference date if possible, but certainly as soon as you can after that, if that's not possible, file a copy with a, without attachments with the court um, and keep a copy in your file. And always be sure that anytime you produce additional discovery after that first notice that you file, supplemental notice of discovery. The last thing I want to note here, and this will be a theme of the next few slides, is you have to document what you're turning over. Make notations on your CTU. Send an email to defense counsel concurrently with the provision of the physical documents if you're also turning them over in court to reflect that you turned it over. You know, CC the court if that is an appropriate uh, mechanism for doing so based on the local practice of the district or superior court you practice in, make a record. There's no reason you shouldn't be doing so, especially now in the context of electronic uh, email and other uh, online filing, because while 99% of the attorneys you deal with on the other side uh, will be upstanding individuals who will not try to take advantage of things that are provided during the course of the case. We have decisions from the SJC and Commonwealth v. Frith and similar cases that demonstrate what happens when you don't have somebody who's playing on the up and up. And if you don't make a record of what you're doing, you can find yourself in a situation later where the record's not so clear and you could be facing case and professional consequences. So document, document, document um, throughout the course of the case. Um, just a couple pra practice tips for the duty to inquire. Um, again, you have an affirmative obligation to search for all the mandatory discovery and exculpatory evidence. Understand who's on the prosecution team and make sure that you're checking with them regularly. Read your documents carefully. If, is there reference to supplemental reports? Is there a reference to an ambulance company or the fire department or other third parties responding? Did crime scene come to the scene and generate a sketch or other documents? Uh, that you need to be turning over. Um, be sure the police understand what it means to, to turn over exculpatory evidence and other categories of mandatory discovery. If you don't feel like they get it, don't be afraid to go ask to look at their file and satisfy yourself that all the information has been turned over. Um, and don't be afraid to check with defense counsel. Ask them if they're missing anything, if there's things they think they need. Now, they're not obligated to tell you about every single thing that they might be interested in because they don't have to give away their strategy, but it doesn't hurt to have an open and frank communication with the other side in the case. It goes both ways. They're going to owe you discovery down the road too, as we're going to discuss in a moment, and having that positive relationship can only benefit you. And again, document your file so everything is memorialized. Um, so now we're moving on to 14A1B, reciprocal discovery. Patrick, did you have some things you wanted to offer on this one, or do you want me to just forge ahead? Sure. No. So reciprocal discovery, I mean, basically, this is when the defense discovery kicks in once the Commonwealth has provided all the discovery that it owes you as the defense counsel. You know, you are essially provided to, you're essentially required to provide the same stuff. 
Um, and when I say the same stuff, I'll get more into this later, but the stuff that you intend to use at trial. So everything um, covered under the prosecutor section is essentially covered in the defense section. Anything, statements, documents, anything that you are going to use, the existence of witnesses that the Commonwealth doesn't know about yet, you're going to call that person, you have to tell the Commonwealth. And underlined here is which the defendant intends to offer at trial. So again, we'll get into that more in a little bit. But you know, basically, it's the same world of evidence, right? If you're going to put it out there at trial, be it live testimony, be it a document, be a video, you have to provide that to the Commonwealth, and you have to do so um, with within a reasonable amount of time. You know, that last bullet point there says generally two weeks prior to trial on the pretrial conference report, and we're talking district court. Um, that's usually sort of the, the deadline. If you can, if it's not going to hurt um, your defense preparation anyway, you can give it before, but really keep in mind that two weeks um, as you are heading towards a trial, you definitely don't want to let that timeline go by and then, you know, possibly be subjected to uh, sanctions, which I think we're going to get into uh, in a little bit. And then, so we've got our affirmative defenses here. So on the left, notice required alibi, mental condition, that's NGRI, not guilty by reason of insanity, license authority ownership or self-defense. Um, and self-defense specifically, if you're talking about adjutant style self-defense, regular self-defense, you do not have to give uh, notice. You can see that's on the right-hand side of the slide. But if part of your defense strategy is to highlight specific instances in the past in which uh, the alleged victim was the first aggressor uh, in fairness to the government, you have to provide those instances, the specific instances, so they can prepare for that. Um, same thing with the, the alibi. Um, wouldn't really be fair to the Commonwealth to, to come in with this sort of story out of nowhere because we wouldn't like if they did that to us. So you have to give them notice of your alibi witness and, and the general parameters of, of what it's going to be. If you're going to say your client was in Alaska on the day in question, um, then you're going to have to provide some, some information about that. Um, mental condition, That's that could be a whole other presentation, so we won't go into that. Just know that if you're going to present a defense of, of not criminally responsible, of uh, criminal insanity, um, which is a term we don't really like to use too much anymore, but you know that's the old, old way of saying it. If you're going to do that, take a look, take a hard look at that uh, 14B2, um, because there's there's a lot there. Just for now, know that that's something that you have to provide notice of beforehand. Most pretrial conference reports in the district courts, those forms will have a section for necessary, um, sorry, defenses that you have to disclose. So that'll remind you uh, as well. Um, but, you know, these other things over here, necessity, duress, self-defense, entrapment, basically any other defense that you have, um, you don't really need to provide notice in the sense of you don't need to tell the Commonwealth, oh, I'm doing a necessity defense, right? But if you, for example, if the charge was trespass and your defense was that your client was homeless and it was during a blizzard and you're going to present evidence of um, weather data from that day, you, you, you need to provide that weather data that you're going to disclose, right? So just because you don't have to provide uh, notice of the actual defense doesn't mean you don't have to provide notice of the evidence that you are going to provide. And we'll talk a little bit more about that 
in a future slide. Thanks, Patrick. All right, so uh, the next section of the rule deals with discovery motions. Again, fairly straightforward. You know, we prosecutors routinely see these sorts of motions. Uh, I'm thinking off the top of my head of like operating under the influence cases, any cases where you have forensic or DNA evidence, we often see these discretionary supplemental discovery motions. Um, you know, I don't think prosecutors file these too much, so Patrick will probably discuss these more in his slides. I will note that dovetailing back to what I was saying before about expert evidence, as a prosecutor, I, you know, a judge may not allow it, but I certainly am often interested in filing a motion to know, you know, where a defense expert has previously testified in what cases, uh, because I want to know if they've been taken apart in another case and if there's fodder for cross-examination that I can use as a prosecutor to undermine uh, the theory or or science that they're testifying to. So you just you know, the possibilities really are endless. There's no harm in asking for things, whether you're a prosecutor or a defense attorney. Uh, the worst that can happen is the court says no. So think creatively about what the kind of things you might need to either prove or defend against the charge and, you know, what how the investigation developed in your particular case. Um, and you'd be surprised the kind of things that you can come up with that maybe not contained within the mandatory provisions of the rule, but which a court will allow you to explore. Uh, through this provision. Do you have anything you want to add here, Patrick? You're just going to cover it later. Um, I'll, I'll cover it a little bit later, but just as a preview, I think that from a from a defense perspective, sometimes there is harm in asking, um, specifically with, with more Rule 17 motions. Um, you know, sometimes you may be revealing some things to the prosecution in the court that you wanted to keep between uh, your client and yourself. Um, but we can get into that later. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, the next section, certificate of compliance. Again, all I wanna say here is that this is sort of a perfunctory necessity of the pretrial process, but just bear in mind that as a prosecutor, um, a belief that no additional inquiry is needed based on an assumption that you've turned everything over without an actual reasonable, diligent inquiry of the people who are on the prosecution team is not gonna satisfy your obligation. And you are making up certain representations under oath when you sign a certificate of compliance as an officer of the court. Um, and again, you know, I don't suspect that this is going to be the case for most of you, but we have decisions of our appellate courts in which prosecutors were sanctioned or evidence was suppressed, not due to necessarily any sort of nefarious or intentional conduct on behalf of the Commonwealth, but just because the prosecutor was busy and didn't take the time to email or call the police prosecutor or the third party entity uh, to make sure that they had a supplemental report or that they had some other key piece of evidence. So again, just to reemphasize that you need to be diligent and really be certain that you've you know, dotted your I's and crossed your T's before you sign that certificate of compliance in a particular case. Um, again, this is memorialized in the rule, but in case it wasn't apparent already, discovery is an ongoing duty. If you learn of additional mandatory discovery or any additional exculpatory evidence or the court orders additional discovery that you may not necessarily have at the time, but that you come upon later, you have to promptly disclose it. This continues through trial and sentencing um, and includes an obligation to correct previous inaccurate disclosures. If we're talking about exculpatory evidence, it extends beyond sentencing, frankly. I mean, if you learn of exculpatory evidence that might have made a difference at trial five years after conviction, 
You're legally and ethically obligated to turn it over, make defense counsel and the court aware of it. Um, so just bear that in mind. Um, the, the fact that it's ongoing is also particularly relevant and now in the context of officer misconduct. An officer may have a spotty or a spotless record rather when your case starts, but prosecutions take a while, especially if they're superior court prosecutions. And a year and a half from now, when the case comes to trial, if you just asked your officer uh, on the arraignment day, hey, you got any any misconduct allegations I need to know about? And then you never ask them again. It's quite possible that the landscape could have changed in those intervening 18 months. And uh, those are important things that can flip cases. So you have to make repeated inquiries, particularly for things that may not exist at the time the case starts, but that could develop in the interim. Uh, work product, uh, again, all I really wanna note about this is that just because you view something as work product doesn't mean that you don't have to turn over exculpatory information contained within that work product if it is otherwise, if you're otherwise obligated, if it otherwise falls within the definition, right? So um, the the case that I cited earlier on one of the slides, Commonwealth v. Pope, is a really good example. There, there was a uh, memorandum to the district attorney that the first assistant drafted in a homicide case, uh, and I would argue that that memo to the district attorney probably qualified as work product, though they didn't focus on it a lot in the case. But that memorandum also contained statements from witnesses and from uh, other individuals who were canvassed around the time of the crime that were inconsistent with statements that were made on scene in the immediate aftermath of the homicide and therefore qualified as inconsistent statements that were probative enough that the court ultimately flipped the conviction. So the point being, you know, don't, don't use work product as an excuse to not turn over things that you otherwise have an obligation to turn over. You may not have an obligation to say turn over an email between you and a colleague discussing strategy or an internal memorandum, but if there are like statements of, of a witness in there or other things that are independently uh, required to be disclosed, the fact that they're memorialized in something that otherwise qualifies as work product doesn't mean you don't have to still independently turn those things over. Uh, protective orders. We sort of talked about this already, um, about how prosecutors don't get to make a unilateral decision about whether to turn over privileged or other things of that nature. But again, when you are dealing with those kinds of things, just um, either involve the court for an in-camera review or talk to the defense attorney about a protective order that prohibits, say, the defendant from seeing the document if it's going to reveal a CI or put somebody in danger or um, if it's a rape case or other sensitive prosecution that prohibits further dissemination to anyone outside of the defense team, I think you'll find as a prosecutor that most defense attorneys are readily willing to agree to these things. Um, not always, but in most instances, I think reasonable limitations on further disclosure dissemination uh, will be agreeable. And what you definitely don't wanna do is just assume that something is privileged or confidential and make a unilateral decision not to disclose it only to have it blow up on you later. Um, discovery sanctions. Uh, all I really wanna note about this is that the court has a, has discretion uh, if there is a discovery violation to provide a, a really wide landscape of remedies. Functionally, in most cases, what that's going to be is a continuance, but for more intentional, egregious violations of discovery that are knowing or reckless, that's a situation where you may find yourself with a suppression issue or even potentially a dismissal of charges. 
So generally, the delayed disclosure of something that is inadvertent or, or not or otherwise not nefarious is going to probably rely uh, result in a continuance, which mostly will just create potential Rule 36 problems for you, but not necessarily tank your case otherwise. And if I could jump in on that one too, as far as a motion for discovery sanctions, that's usually going to be the defense counsel who's filing that. Um, and, you know, it's not necessarily about uh, an intentional malicious withholding of evidence. It's usually because something slipped through the cracks, someone's overworked, whatever. But the point is, it's, you know, you don't have to focus on, on malice. You just have to um, establish for the court that this should have been turned over under Rule 14, should have been turned over at the first pretrial, the second pretrial, what have you. Um, and that's why it can be good. If you think this is going to be an issue, um, you know, make sure you you make that paper trail with the court. File a motion for specific uh, discovery. You know, I know there's this report out there and I need it and get the court to say, OK, Commonwealth, you have to turn it over by X date so that when X date goes by, you have grounds to say, judge, you know, a continuance in this won't 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 satisfy uh, I would like you to, you know, exclude this whatever portion of evidence. And this this stuff is rare. Um, but if you think it's going to happen, you need to document, create that paper trail. All right. All right. So it looks like this is uh, my time to shine. So, um, you know, the rules for defense in a lot of ways are the same rules for the Commonwealth. As I said before, the reciprocal discovery it's it's mainly the same stuff that you have to provide. Um, the idea, of course, is that we want to have a fair trial. We want to avoid a trial by surprise. So in that spirit, you as a defense attorney also have to disclose the evidence that you are going to use at trial. As you saw before, when I when I stepped in on the slide, that was what was underlined. It was the discovery that you must disclose is that which you intend to use at trial. So if you don't Remember anything else that I say in the next 15 or so minutes or that I said before, remember that if you are defending a case, a criminal case in Massachusetts District Court or really anywhere else, um, you have to turn over what you intend to use at trial. OK, so that means if you're going to use something, please remember to turn it over. Otherwise, the Commonwealth and the trial date is going to say, no, you can't use that surprise witness, that surprise document, and the, the court will say, correct, you can't use that. And so it may as well not exist. So remember, if you're going to turn something over two weeks before trial or earlier. Now, beyond that, if there's something else in your file that you're not going to use, you do not have to turn it over, right? We have different discovery obligations in the sense that, you know, the Commonwealth represents the Commonwealth, everybody in it. We represent the Commonwealth one person at a time. So you have to keep in mind that person's interests and make sure that um, what you are doing is aligning with those interests and you are not you know, giving away something that could potentially incriminate your client or um, give the Commonwealth any sort of leg up that they, that they don't deserve to have under the rules of uh, discovery. So here we have, what do you want? What, how can you get it? What do you have to give, right? I just went over that third part, sort of out of order there, but what do you want? What's your theory? What's going to be helpful? What's going to be harmful, but you don't want to get surprised? So we can go on to the next slide now. Um, so these are all your sources of information. 
you know, we've been mostly talking about discovery, that fourth box there under Rule 14 and Brady and its, its progeny and its Massachusetts offshoots. So that's the world of discovery that the that the Commonwealth gives you, starting with that police report, that first police report at your arraignment date and, you know, continuing on with that trickle until the Commonwealth says discovery is closed. Now, from, um, you know, your resource versus your resources, what do you have? You have your client's story and information, the you know, the information they give you, the people that they tell you you can speak to, you know, my my cousin was there, talk to him, you know, uh, my boss can tell you I was here at this time, whatever it may be. You've got your own investigation that's, you know, getting a, um, a motion for funds from the court to hire a private investigator to go out and speak to other witnesses. Um, you know, that's perhaps going out on the scene with your investigator, looking around for any cameras that might be in the area that might have captured something. Um, and then that leads me to public records. So for example, say if you, you see, um, you know, a camera out there and you know that it belongs to the city, well, you might be able to get that through a public, public records request to get that, uh, that footage. Um, or you might make that records request and the entity might say, well, you need a court order to get that. And that brings you over there to that fifth box which is rule 17, uh, which is that you need to go to the court and ask for um, the court's permission to get whatever you're looking for and for the court um, to throw their weight behind it so that this entity will actually provide those records. So for example, one that we get into a lot is um, phone records. The phone company will almost never give you what you're looking for just on your request, unless it's something like your client's phone bill and They'll give you that with your client's, you know, permission. Um, but if you're looking for more information than that, they usually want a court order, which means you go to the court. And that means that the Commonwealth is going to be aware of your request. And very likely they're going to see the results of your request because uh, that information is going to come to the court. So I, I referenced before this, the I think Jamie said no harm in asking. Rule 17 is where there could be some harm. Uh, in asking, and we'll get more into that in a little bit. So we can go to the, the next slide here. So what discovery do you want? All the automatic discovery, again, anything that you think is in the Commonwealth's uh, possession, you can certainly ask for it. Um, a lot of these things are just going to be automatic. We've got listed there, 911, turret, CAD tapes. Um, I say tapes, but I don't think they're on tape anymore. Uh, usually, they're all they're all digital, and they're given to us in an email. Uh, I still get CDs sometimes, though, but never any never any tapes. Uh, bench notes. So you know, if there's a question of testing, you know, a question of drug testing, for example, since we're talking about district court mainly, um, you should get that you know entire file where they draw those lines and they write their notes about you know what this what this substance is. Prior bad acts of defendant, if to be used, um, that doesn't come up too often in district court, but you, you may see it. Um, but just know that you are not limited to just whatever the Commonwealth gives you. You know, you don't have to just stick with that initial police report. That's your starting point. Uh, and depending on the case, from the Commonwealth's perspective, it may be the entire case uh, for them, but it doesn't have to be the entire case for you. So examples here, police reports, field mess, sorry, field interrogation observation reports, 
from your case or other cases. Um, so, for example, you know, if you want to find out um, if this is a police involved case and you want to find out sort of the kinds of stops that this officer has been making in the recent past, because you think that may be relevant to your case, you can certainly look for that information. Um, that's become more relevant recently in the last few years after a case called Commonwealth v. Wong, which itself could be a whole series of presentations, won't go into that. Um, chain of custody for evidence, search warrants. Obviously, if you if you know there's a search warrant in your case, um, you know, go out there and get it. I mean, the Commonwealth will give it to you at some point, um, but you may as well, you know, start working on that now. Um, so we can go on to the next slide. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just brief plug. I expect the criminal law section to do a long program later this year. So stay tuned. Yes. Give you all those details that Patrick's talking about. And I would say that that, that long is in many ways the, is in many ways the future. So when that does come up, you should definitely attend um, for for everyone who's involved in criminal cases in the Commonwealth. So here we go. Things you might want. Um, so surveillance locations. Um, you know, generally, I've never been a prosecutor, but my understanding is that generally, if something is in your file, unless it is work product, it is discoverable. Some exceptions apply. So, for example, surveillance locations. If you know, again, let's just say this was a drug case, uh, uh, an allegation of distribution, and you know that the police were were watching your client from certain locations, you know, to put together their case, um, you may be able to get that that surveillance location info because it may, um, you know, be a big part of your defense. Again, I think there was a mention before of my cousin Vinny. There's that scene about, uh, what is it, the crud on the blinds? So there may be a question of visibility. Um, so that can't hurt to ask. You have to make a case, though, that 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 you need that information. There's a countervailing, um, there's a balancing for the court to do on whether or not they're going to give up that information, but go for it. Um, informant information for a search warrant, same thing. You, the police have a confidential informant. They don't want to give up the information about that informant for various public safety reasons. You have to convince the court that your client's rights to due process uh, outweigh any um, of the Commonwealth's uh, stated claims for keeping that information private. But again, no harm in putting that motion out there and giving it a shot. Uh, prior false statements by police, uh, you definitely need that, um, as Jamie went over. You know, that that sort of world is expanding. Uh, I think it's fair to say that the Commonwealth now has has a little bit more of a job to do in, in affirmatively exploring with their witnesses whether there is something like that. Um, now obviously, they don't have to, you know, go through their entire life record and look for the time that they cheated on an algebra test. But, you know, if they are aware of, of these things like false statements, to the false statements by the police, they are definitely going to let you know uh, about that. Prior false allegations by alleged victim, um, that's been the case for a while now. There is, um, you know, there's sometimes people call the rape shield uh, concern to, to take into account there. If you, for example, say this is a sexual assault case, again, less likely in district court, but it could happen, um, and where you are wanting to bring up some sort of past incident with the victim, you might have to um, convince the court that this is information that you can um, actually 
you know, get into a trial, although that is a separate issue, whether it's admissible or not. But again, no harm in in looking for it. CGIS data on when a police ran a license plate. CGIS is the little thing in the uh, police car where they look up your license plate and all that. Um, that's useful for verifying what the police actually, the parameters they searched for before they pulled your client's car over to make sure that it's in fact, uh, it was in fact a valid stop. Um, again, no harm in asking for that. Internal affairs records of police, again, same thing. Uh, those are also, you know, records that you can do a Freedom of Information Act request on before asking the Commonwealth or before going to the court on. You might want to do this as a preliminary matter to see if there's anything out there at all. Yeah, and I'll just note that the recent legislation eliminated the privacy exemption to FOIA requests or mm. public records requests. So you still probably aren't going to get that from all police departments, but I think it's more likely than it was in the past. Agreed. Uh, things you might want, uh, some other things you might want. So so video. Um, takeaway in video is always talk to your client first before you ask for this. You know, let's just say that the, the allegation is, is robbing a 7-Eleven, you know, um, going in there and, and getting money from the cash register. Those places all have cameras. And if for whatever reason the Commonwealth does not get its hand on, on that footage and give it to you immediately, um, you want to consider getting it. Consider getting it because these, these things are usually erased within a couple weeks. So that might already, that window might be already gone. But if your client is adamant that there's going to be nothing incriminating on that video, you want to get it before it's erased. But you need to have a hard talk with your client about making sure that there's nothing incriminating. Because if you end up having to go the Rule 17 route, you know, 7-Eleven says, you know, we're not giving you this video without a court order. And you got to go the Rule 17 route and get the court's permission to get that, that means the Commonwealth's going to see that video too, right? And if it's not helpful, then you're stuck. So you don't want to generate um, incriminating evidence. So, so have a hard talk with your client before you before you get that stuff. Um, I should say, though, you know, if you if you get camera footage from the 7-Eleven or somewhere down the street um, without a court order, they just give it to you, and you find something bad on there for your client, you don't have to turn that over. Right. Unless there's also something good on there that you want to use a trial. If it's if it's, it's a split sort of good, bad, and you want to use it a trial, you got to give that up to the Commonwealth at least a couple weeks before trial. So then that'll be a strategy call for you. Independent testing and measurement of evidence. Ballistics. Again, that can be both ways. You can get an expert who can tell you, um, you know, well, it's it's not clear if the gun came from sorry, if the bullet came from this gun, but it's a possibility. Um, medical records. Again, that's something that, that comes up a lot. You know, let's just say it's a drunk driving case, and um, you know there there um, medical records for your client that for some reason the Commonwealth hasn't got its hands on. Um, you know, if your client tells you, "Well, I didn't do so well in the balance tests because you know I I have um, a prosthetic leg, and sometimes that gives me trouble." But, you know, I can tell you, I went to the hospital the next day and they, you know, for whatever reason, and there's medical records of my prosthetic leg. Great. But if the medical records also are so close in time to the accident that they show your client is intoxicated, well, you don't want to provide that to the Commonwealth, um, but you already have if it's Rule 17 in effect. So be careful with these things. Same, same thing goes for DCF records. Um, you can imagine a whole world of, of possible ways in which you could accidentally incriminate your client. So just be sure that uh, you want these things before you go looking for them. 
There we go. There's the long motion. So um, that's, you know, prima facie case of, of racial profiling for a stop, whether that be in the car or um, it's been expanded to on foot now this past year. Um, so that's what I'm talking about with those FIOs, recent traffic stops, um, where you can make out a case that the, the stop of your client may have been racially motivated. Um, so again, look for the the, the posting for that, that long uh, training coming up. Uh, sometime in the near future. Probation hearings. So uh, just a quick note, you do get discovery on those, uh, although as this notes here, it can be kind of complicated because usually the, the I mean, the, the other party in a probation matter is probation, not necessarily the Commonwealth. The Commonwealth may get involved if the probation violation is a new charge and they want to run the hearing um, but generally, this is not a problem. If you ask the probation department for a piece of discovery and they say, well, we don't have that, just go to the Commonwealth, um, see if they've got it. They, I haven't really been given any pushback on that in the past. So again, uh, recent changes, uh, some new magic words there. So McFarlane had some good advice for the um, defense counsel, which is that um, Make your discovery motions. First of all, don't just rely on the Commonwealth and their Rule 14 obligations. You, you can file an affirmative discovery motion. Usually most of the things will be will be allowed um, without any objection from the Commonwealth. But just, you know, like I said before, making a paper trail, put it out there, say that you want any statements from your client, any statements from witnesses, any reports, documents, any videos. Um, and then now you can include for any law enforcement witness the Commonwealth intends to cause a witness to trial or any member of the law enforcement team who is involved in the investigation of the crimes charged, please produce any and all information concerning whether that person is a subject of any charge, external or internal, informal or formal, criminal or civil misconduct relating to his or her professional duties. Uh, the reason why that's included is because uh, in McFarland, which I think was a gun charge, um, the the one of the officers, um, uh, one of the Commonwealth's witness officers, had this um, issue pending in federal court, right, Jamie? So it was. Yeah, it's a pending civil trial in which he was found liable for, I think, a false arrest and right some force during the arrest. Right, and so the the court found that um, the appeals court, I should say, the court found that the Commonwealth should have disclosed, should have been aware of this stuff, should have disclosed it to the defense. Um, but I believe that in the end, um, the court also found that the the defendant showed it insufficient modicum of prejudice. So um, the, the case was not the, he was not given a new trial, if I'm, if I'm right on that, right, Jamie? I think you are correct. I mean, it's kind of that standard line of uh, exculpatory evidence that goes only to impeachment is rarely right. if that grounds for reversal, but that doesn't mean that uh, prosecutors shouldn't be finding this stuff and turning it over to satisfy their obligation. Correct, exactly. But also for the defense counsel, just make sure you have that language in your um, discovery motions that way, if it ever, you know, goes the wrong way at trial and goes the wrong way in appeal, or if it's on appeal, you can say, hey, I asked for this from the beginning. You know, I clearly in my defense strategy was was counting on this, you know, not existing. Um, I think in McFarlane, it was fair to say that it was, um, you know, a surprise, at least for the, the trial defense counsel at the time. Um, and that way they found no prejudice. So just be sure you don't want to rely on an appellate court to, to come back and win this case for you because of something that you didn't necessarily ask. Um, you're in a much better position to show prejudice or not at the trial level. Um, so make sure you ask for that stuff. 
And then the expected amend amendments to Rule 14 is what Jamie was talking about. We do expect some new rules here to clarify and, and modernize discovery obligations, all those cases where the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, where our SJC has decided we're going to be um, we're going to be broader than just Brady. We're going to actually um, put a little bit more of a burden on the Commonwealth to to you know uh, disclose these things, to investigate their own witnesses. We expect that to be um, a lot clearer in the the new Rule 14 that's forthcoming. Yeah, I will just say that not to not to give prosecutors a pass, but as a if you're a district court prosecutor with several hundred cases at any given time and you're just starting out, it's you know, what is exculpatory? It's it's not the easiest thing to define. And I think the new rule is going to have essentially a Brady checklist. It will list categories of things so that prosecutors can know by just referring to the rule uh, what their obligations are. They'll know who members of the prosecution team are without having to go, you know, get trainings from people like me or go searching through the case law to figure it out. I think just having that information up front will be beneficial to both parties. Uh, I also just note that McFarland uh, was argued before it was uh, on further appellate review to the SJC and was argued in September, along with another case out of Worcester County that involved the prosecutor's uh, prosecuting office's obligation to affirmatively investigate allegations of misconduct by their local police departments. And I would expect that decisions in both of those cases will be coming down in the next month or so, mm -hmm. which could necessitate an entirely new presentation. Right. We'll cross that but, bridge when we get there. But the fundamentals are are still the same. You know, we don't we don't expect the the new rules to totally wipe away the old rules. Um, but just you know, keep your eyes and ears peeled for those upcoming changes. If you're a prosecutor, I think you should expect that you're going to be doing a little more legwork in the coming months and years, uh, and with respect to exculpatory evidence and particularly law enforcement misconduct evidence. So, um, if there are any questions, I don't think I see any in the chat, but if anybody has any they want to post. Um, otherwise, thank you to everybody. Thanks to Patrick. Um, you know, you. our emails are here. If people have individual questions and they want to shoot me or Patrick an email, I'm sure we'd be happy to respond. And we'll make sure that we get the uh, presentation to the BBA so they can send it to all of you. So you'll have this PowerPoint.